Hey, if you're a guest with us here this morning, we're super glad that you're here with us. I want to just give you a little um, sneak peek of how we are, how I am. We believe that Jesus was a real person who came and lived and died, got put in a grave, busted that out, and rose again, and he's in heaven, and we can believe in him and have it experience forgiveness and transformation. So what you're probably going to hear and see from me this morning, some of you might be a, a little bit like, oh my word. We're just learning to be more passionate. We're trying to press in and we're trying to learn to be and live in the potential that God has for us. And I felt that. Okay. Good. Put that one over. She thinks she knows me. <laughs> if you have your Bible, turn to Second Peter. We're going to continue. We're going to be in Second Peter. What we've been doing is we've been going through First Peter, Second Peter. We are blitzing through this study. Um, we're on week forty now. <laughs> And we're, we're just rolling through it. And I got a really simple concept for you this morning. And I, I just want to say that it there, there's a bunch of different ways that you could break these verses down. We're going to be in verses 12 through 16. There's so many nuanced uh, realities and things that we could break apart that we could look at, that we could, we could diagnose and we could just uh, uh, take apart this morning. But one of the things that I really want us to focus on, and there's some key words and phrases that I want us to look at, but I just want you to think about this morning, this concept, complacency kills and destroys. And so I'm just telling you right up front, my goal for me as a person and our goal as a church is for us to be more passionate and we want to kick complacency to the curb. Complacency kills and it destroys. Let's jump into verse 12. This is what Peter said to this group of people that he was writing to because he got to walk with Jesus. He got to experience Jesus firsthand. And so he is writing all these years later after he's learned all these things. And I love, G- I love, I love Peter with Jesus because Peter is such a great encouragement for those of us like myself that can be buffoonish. You know what I'm saying? You make mistakes, but you not only make mistakes, but you make them in public. And so Peter's a great encouragement. Listen to what he says in verse 12. But these... So about false teachers, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. As we read these passages, how can we not feel like that he wrote this in our current culture? The things that are said and proclaimed today. They do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Think about the law of sowing and reaping. You create this corruption for yourself, and in your own corruption chokes you out or takes you down. And they will receive the wages or the earning of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to mention, but please hear me this morning. 
Notice, notice that, that cohabitation, that friendship, that there is a purposeful pursuit, and yet these same people want to rub off on those that are seeking Jesus. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. And then in that state, what are they doing? They're enticing unstable souls. They have a heart. Look at this phrase. Trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way. They've forsaken it and they've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, if you go back and look at Numbers chapter 22, if you want to read the Old Testament record, um, I just love the fact that God is at work. God's God's plan of protection and provision. I love the fact that he even used a donkey. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was out, let's just say I'm, I'm not riding a donkey, I'm just riding a horse. And I started having a conversation with Ned, and Ned started talking to me in a voice. It's he's going to think, make me think, number one, I took some hallucinogenic somewhere before I got on the horse, or, oh my word, there's something supernatural going on here. And if you read the story of Balaam, God was definitely trying to protect his people Israel because Balaam had already made a choice because of financial gain that he was going to go against what God had told him to do. Because if you read the story, Balaam was a prophet for hire. It was, it was, it was all about, a lot about cash flow and changing the giftedness that God had given him. But I just want you to think about that. And as we jump in, I want to, I want to sideswipe you and I want to share with you three words um, that a three-word evaluation that I learned years ago, and I, I hope that it'll make sense and help you as we go through this. It's easy for me to remember, and the Holy Spirit has brought this to my mind for so many times to protect me. And it's from James chapter 1 and verse 15. Lust, sin, and death. There we go. Lust, sin, and death. And so, a lot of the newer translations, some of you are reading, um, I'll read you from the NLT, it, the, the word lust is inserted with the, the word desires. So what it says in the New Living Translation, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And then when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, this word death here is, some of you would think that it would be the cessation of life. But this is, a, this is a deeper meaning than just death. There's, there's all kinds of death, decay, and destruction that can happen in our lives without the cessation of life. And what I'm trying to say here is that every week we watch the ripple effect of lust and death. Husbands, wives, family members making choices, and they say certain things like it's really not going to matter what they do, and yet you see the destruction and the death reality and the toll that it takes on the people because it's like this ripple effect. And then it winds up affecting people that you wouldn't even think would be affected because of this principle, and this principle is still in play, lust desires sin, and then there's some kind of destruction that takes place. I've observed the depth of that reality throughout my short life on this earth. Any lust or desire 
that is allowed to grow turns into a real sin issue that ultimately creates some type of death or destruction. We all have this in common. We all have these struggles. I just want to remind you of Christ's teaching because we went through the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, this whole lust, sin, and depth concept, Jesus presented that it's a much deeper issue. We want to look at it as a topical action issue. Lust, sin, and death is what we do. Jesus presented on the Sermon on the Mount that it's really about what we think and who we are way down deep in our hearts because that's where the sin originates. It's a bigger issue than what we think. I want to read you from John MacArthur in his commentary of the New Testament because there are certain words I think he did a great job. And it's super important because I want to expose some of these words and help you understand the depth of what Peter is saying here. Beyond sexual favors, the false teachers of Peter's day were also interested in accumulating wealth. Sound like any news source you've read the last 10 or 15 years about church? You wonder why people look at the church in America and say, I don't need this Jesus that you proclaim? Let's be honest. They have some real reasons to feel the way that they do. The phrase, having a heart trained in greed, indicates that their immorality was always accompanied by avarice. Trained, this word trained in the Greek from which the English word gymnasium is derived, is an athletic term meaning exercise or discipline. As a verb, it presents a disturbing description of the false teachers. William Barclay explains in his commentary, the picture is a terrific one. The word which is used for trained is the word which is used for an athlete exercising and training himself for the games. Very intentional. These people have actually trained and equipped and taught their minds and hearts to concentrate on nothing but the forbidden desire. They have deliberately fought with conscience until they have destroyed it. They have deliberately wrestled with God until they have thrown God out of life. They have deliberately struggled with their finer feelings until they have strangled them. They have deliberately trained themselves to concentrate on the forbidden things. Their lives have been a dreadful battle to destroy virtue and to train themselves in the techniques of sin. MacArthur goes on to say, without question, Peter understood that their actions were not accidental. Their offenses were crimes of premeditation, not momentary lapses of judgment. As masterminds of sin, the false teachers had planned their attacks and purposed their hearts towards sensual and materialistic ends. By and large, the church in America, we have become so complacent and so apathetic, and we are so accustomed to these sensual and materialistic pursuits by spiritual leaders that to a certain degree, it doesn't even phase us anymore. And so then in our own lives, 
And what, what we do is then we wind up, we take this whole grace thing, this whole grace concept, and then what we do is we walk around like naive little kids trying to say, oh, well, they didn't really mean it that way. I'm sure that that's not what, and what Peter's saying is that the heart of man, nothing has changed. You've got people in this world that have so worked for so long and so hard to sear, as the scripture says, to sear their own conscience, to literally take like a a branding iron, a hot iron over their mind, their conscience, and their thinking to where that they have totally kicked God out of their minds. And then We've got to be careful that we don't allow those people to influence us. Complacency. I want to use it as a noun. Marion Webster says it this way. I want you to listen to these two meanings. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by an awareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Not only does that sound like the church in America, it sounds like our nation. We are so full of ourselves that we have deluded ourselves. Second, second term, an instance of usually unaware or uninformed self-satisfaction. Complacency kills and destroys, especially in the church. And I'm going to make no apologies. I'm going, to, I'm going to be reading something to you. I'm going to be reading an account that I came across in just a few minutes. And it is poignant. And some of you are going to be like, <gasps> but it reveals to us how we need to search our hearts because what this world needs is not more complacency in Worship and complacency in church. What the unsaved, unbelieving world needs to see is people that are afire for the love of God because we want to love God and we want to learn to love each other and we have this passion that we can't keep quiet. When you're going in places and you work to keep your mouth shut, I'm praying in the Holy Spirit that your love will just leap out of your mouth and you will not be able to partake in the sin because the passion is just going to come out of you because Jesus is more alive and real in you than you ever thought he could be. I'm hoping some of you get exposed and embarrassed in the most beautiful way. I mean that. You're like, Pastor Tim, you kind of scared me this morning. (laughs) We ain't getting there yet. Complacency kills and destroys, but especially with Christ and his church. Let Let me share several phrases with you. And if you've used these, I wasn't over listening here, overhearing what you're saying. These are just common complacency things. Hear this one probably every week. It's not that big a deal. Like seriously, it's not that big a deal. Things have changed, so that doesn't matter like it used to. I hear this one, and usually there's a little tagline like, Pastor Tim, you're just old school. No one is going to care anyway. Ah, who cares? As long as it gets done. 
Doesn't matter how it's done, just as long as it gets done, doesn't matter. Look at all we have accomplished. We'll be fine. It's okay. Look at all that we've accomplished. And here we go. I think we've all heard this one. If it ain't broke, and some of you are like, I ain't saying that. I know the answer. I will not participate. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Henry Spencer said, you have to challenge yourself. If not, complacency sets in. And bad things happen when people become complacent. We have a lot of golfers in this church family. So maybe you'll listen to Jack if nobody else. Jack Nicholas says, complacency is a continuous struggle that we all have to fight. So what I'm standing here this morning, I'm just letting you know that I am, as a spiritual leader in this church family, I have dreams and desires and complacency cannot be part of who I am. And I will not give up. I am pressing in and I am more committed. I am more passionate about my Savior and on your behalf and the people in this region than I have ever been in my life. And so I have to personally attack complacency in my life. I have to attack the movies that I watch. I have to attack the music that I listen to because all of these things say to me subtly, it's okay, Timmy. It's okay. You no, 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 no. You're getting a little too worked up. Just relax. <laughs> okay. Are you tracking with me? Some of you might be here this morning. This might be your first and your last time. <laughs> like, there's something wrong with that dude. You don't know the half of it yet. Ask some people that know me. You'll be like, man, it's okay. I'm going to read this to you. But before I do, I want to say this. Passionately loving God and loving others is not fostered through complacency. We talk about it, we're, we're, we're looking at it, we were casting a vision, the vision continues. We talked about it last week. If our mandate is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if our mandate is to learn to love other people the way that we naturally love ourselves, if this is our mandate, there is no room for complacency for us to pursue this together. We must be intentional in our pursuit of Christ by faith through grace. Now, I want to share something with you that was written by David Reiser. And I'm just going to let you know, this pierced my heart. So I'm going to share it with you. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of teaching at a school of ministry. Let me just tell you straight up. I view our church as a school of ministry. I do. Some of you come... And you say, hey, Pastor Tim, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, okay, let's figure out. You pray about it. Let's pray together. Let's forge a plan and let's see how God is going to work this out in your life. Because what I want to be is I just want to be a big cheerleader. Go get them. Because this is a school of ministry. So this is who he's talking to. He said, my students were hungry for God. We've got people in both services that are hungry for God. Hallelujah. 
And I was constantly searching for ways to challenge them to fall more in love with Jesus and to become voices for revival in the church. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. That's what we're trying to do weekly. So I love this. I came across a quote attributed um, most often to Reverend Sam Pasco. It's a short version of the history of Christianity. And it goes like this. Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and it became an institution. It moved to Europe and it became a culture. It came to America and it became an enterprise. Some of the students were only 18 and 19 years old. I wanted them to understand and appreciate the importance of the last line, so I clarified it by adding an enterprise that's a business. After a few moments, Martha, the youngest student in the class, she raised her hand. I cannot imagine what her question might be. I thought the little vignette was self-explanatory and that I had performed it brilliantly. Nevertheless, I acknowledged Martha's raised hand. Yes, Martha. She asked such a simple question. A business? But it's supposed to be a body. I cannot envision where this line of questioning was going. The only response I could think of was yes. She continued. But when a body becomes a business, isn't that a prostitute? The room went dead silent. For several seconds, no one moved or spoke. We were stunned, afraid to make a sound because the presence of God had flooded into the room and we knew we were all on holy ground. God had taken over the class. Martha's question changed my life. For six months, I thought about her question at least once every day. When a body becomes a business, isn't it a prostitute? There's only one answer to her question, and the answer is still yes. The American church tragically is heavily populated by people who do not love God. How can we love him? We don't even know him. And I mean really know him. I stand by my statement that I believe that most American Christians do not know God, much less love him. The root of this condition originates in how we came to God. Most of us came to him because of what we were told he would do for us. We were promised that he would bless us in life and take us to heaven after death. We married him for his money, and we don't care if he lives or dies as long as we get his stuff. We were made, we've made the kingdom of God into a business, and we've been merchandising his anointing. This should not be. We are commanded to love God and we're called to be the bride of Christ. And let's be honest, that's pretty intimate stuff. We're supposed to be his lovers. How can we love someone we don't even know? And even if we do know someone, is it a guarantee that we truly love them? Are we lovers or prostitutes? I was pondering Martha's question again one day, and I considered the question, what's the difference between a lover and a prostitute? I realized that both do many of the same things, but a lover does what she does because she loves. A prostitute pretends to love, but only as long as you pay. 
Then I asked the question, what would happen if God stopped paying me? The next several months, I allowed God to search me to uncover my motives for loving and serving Him. Was I really a true lover of God? What would happen if He stopped blessing me? What if He never did another thing for me? Would I still love Him? Please understand, I believe in the promises and blessings of God. The issue here is not whether God blesses His children. The issue is the condition of my heart. Why do I serve Him? Are His blessings in my life the gifts of a loving Father, or are they a wage that I have earned or a bribe bribe or payment to love Him? Do I love God without any conditions? It took several months to work through these questions, even now. I wonder if my desire to love God is is always a match. I'm reading this to you this morning because this pierced my heart. And I'm sharing with you because of the evaluation process of my own heart. I cannot become complacent. Every word of God is important whether I understand the meaning or not. I must, I cannot be lazy. And I'm telling you publicly, I cannot back off. Amen. I am... I will not be satisfied with my past experiences with Father God. Please understand my heart. Some of you have prayed with me. Some of you would have conversations. And I can remember even in college, I would pray with guys and they would boast about their great love for God. And I'm going to be honest with you, even back then, because of this evaluation process, I would say to God, Father, I like you a lot, but I don't know if I love you yet. I respect you and I think the world of you, but it's difficult for me to say, I love you. And then for me to look and say, Tim, do you love me with everything within yourself? What is the real answer if I'm going to look deep within myself? No, I don't. But I want to learn to love him that way. And the way that I learned to love him that way is by these painful evaluation process to look deep within myself, the motives of why I do what I do. And am I really okay with all of the beautiful past things that I've experienced? Am I going to live based on those past beautiful things? Or am I going to yearn and am I going to ask you to yearn like never before for supernatural proclamation, for supernatural intervention, for supernatural revelation over this church family so that we can see an anointing, an awakening, a movement of God like we've never seen before. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to give up on that. And so personally... I have to address complacency in my life. And I'm going to tell you, church family, I feel in my heart that we're only getting started. We've just been doing the scratch and sniff up to this point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I like that one. We just have to scratch and sniff the stage. I believe that there's incredible, supernatural, anointed things for us. But it's us, not one or two people. So we have to address complacency because I'm telling you right now, the forces of evil, please hear me and understand. 
Some of you, we talk about this individually. The forces of evil do not like what we're doing, what we're pursuing, and how God is blessing us. Do you not understand that? Whether you fully are passionate on my level, the fact that you are leaning in and your heart is open and you are trying to address your unbelief makes you an enemy of these false forces that we're talking about this morning. You got a bullseye on you. Complacency must be addressed, not just for me and my life and my family, but for us. I want to close by reading Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14 in the New Living Translation. I want you to just embrace this scripture. Hear it, listen to it, receive it. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him, our Lord. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin Control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Another way to say it is do not let it reign or be preeminent in your body. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have a new life. So use your whole body. As an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Is there anything about this passage that proclaims complacency? Well, no, that's okay. That's not that big a deal. Well, nobody else is like as fired up about things as you are. I don't care about anybody else. I'm looking at me before God. And so guess what? I'm still in the throes of learning to embrace my life that I am no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer has bondage over me. And every single one of us in here, we have that little whatever you want to call it, that is our weakness. That is a thing that is that besetting, tripping, ensnaring thing where you're like, man, I'm growing in Christ. It's holding me back. We all have that. But it's not that way in heaven because of Christ Jesus. And so what we have to learn to do is live our lives based on what he says about our sin, not how we view it. And so I'm constantly reminding myself, Tim, you are no longer a servant to sin. And then there's this little old part of me that's like, eh, how's that been working for you? I am no longer a slave to sin because I'm going to fight passionately to learn to experience God's amazing things that he has for me. Oh, if you could only get a glimpse of the great potential that you have in Christ Jesus, it would blow your lid. A.W. Tozer says, complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. 
Some of you, you want to know why you can't feel God's presence? You want to know why your faith is not growing? Because you're just like the rest of us. You've been complacent. Everything's going okay. Everything's nice. I've got what I want. Are you progressing spiritually? Are you growing? Of all the things a leader should fear, complacency heads the list. John Maxwell, great leader of leaders and teacher of leaders. And I'm just going to tell you from my heart, for this church family, complacency, this is not a one-time conversation. Complacency kills and destroys. Some of you are sitting there right now and you're doing your dead level best to keep a straight face and to not let your face reveal anything about what's going on inside of you, but you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experiencing, you've been experiencing death, but you're still alive. There's been this destructive death dying process that you've been experiencing because of complacency. I'm asking you this morning to join us and come alive in Christ Jesus like you never thought you could and to break the chains and to put us away complacency and let's pursue and let's believe that God has amazing things. And it's not about a building. It's not about a property. If God blesses us with that, then hallelujah. It's about lives being changed and people being set free and sins being forgiven and people saying, I'm going to repent. I've been going this way. Woo, man, I'm going this way now. You say, Pastor Tim, you're scaring me. Good. Because this is my prayer. This is my prayer for us this year. That over the next couple months, you are so uncomfortable and you are so wigged out and you are so like twisted up that either you are going to get in or it's time to move on. So Pastor Tim, did you just say that? Mm-hmm. Because that's what it is. It's not that what I just said is no lacking of love. I love you enough to tell you the truth that we cannot entertain complacency any longer. We have to be passionate pursuers of Jesus. So what is it that's keeping you from doing that? I don't know what it is for you. I know what my junk is and I face it every day. My sin is ever before me. Say, oh, Pastor Tim, I know you don't struggle like you. Then you obviously don't know me. Yeah, because I'm a man wrapped in flesh just like you are. Our mandate is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love other people the way we love ourselves. That to me sounds like a passionate pursuit with no room for complacency. Let's think about those things as we stand and we sing together in worship.